So Money, episode 636, Brian Maloney, owner of Cusp NYC. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome to the show. It is October 9th. 2017. A big shout out to my girlfriend, Margie Fox. It's her birthday today. Margie, I love you. And how appropriate that today's guest is actually Margie's best friend and a very good friend of mine. He is someone who has been a key member of my support system since the very early days of living in New York and being broke and not knowing anyone. Brian has always been there for me. He's more than just a friend. He is a mentor. He is an entrepreneur, a dad, a brother, a husband. He recently made a brilliant career pivot from high profile positions in brand marketing and public relations to becoming the owner of his own Brooklyn art gallery called Cusp NYC. And I've been there. It's incredible. It's a gem. You've got to visit. I've always wanted to pick Brian's genius brain and talk money with him. So now seemed like a great opportunity. Brian has always had a love of art. In fact, he says that the power of art has always been his engine for creativity and inspiration in helping brands. His modus operandi, creativity unleashed to solve problems. I love that. And it's how he also came up with the name CUSP. It's the acronym C-U-S-P for the gallery here in Brooklyn. Later this month, very exciting, CUSP will be featuring 12 female artists in an exhibit called Make Room. All the artists use uncommon techniques or a unique process to transform traditional media. So maybe I'll see you there. Go to cusp-nyc.com. Now we're going to listen to Brian Maloney on his money philosophy growing up in the Midwest and flipping burgers at Burger King. You got to start somewhere. Here's Brian Maloney. Brian Maloney, welcome to So Money. This is an epic episode for me because you are probably somebody who has known me longer than probably anybody else in New York. Can I just say that? And so an honor and a delight to have you on my podcast. Welcome. Same here. Thank you. You and I met, what, like 2003, 2004, all the way back when I was a just a wee graduate student and you were running your Maloney and Fox, which was a, how would you describe Maloney and Fox? I think it's limiting to just say that you were a marketing agency. It was a, a creative consultancy. We, we, uh, we liked to tag it as PR marketing and then some because we did a lot more than just that. Right. And then some truly, uh, you guys won several awards, uh, your business partner at the time, Margie Fox, the two of you have been incredibly supportive of me. And I just, um, I'll never be able to pay you guys back for all the support and cheerleading and help that you have been in, in my journey. So, um, I, I wanted to have you on the show because I think that, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you have so much to teach, so much to share. Your journey is really incredible. You went from, you know, uh, well, I met you at Maloney and Fox. Before that, you were uh, 
you know, working in um, marketing and PR and starting your own company as a leader. I think you're just exceptional. You went on to Ogilvy and ran huge teams for them. And now you are running Cusp. So where do we begin? Where do you think was really a pivotal time in your career that is worth sharing where you feel like, you know, this was a time in your life where you were learning a lot and you, there, there were some incredible takeaways. Was it when you were at Maloney and Fox or was it maybe when you were transitioning? I, I think that's a, a perfect place to start. And I actually like to call it my taco sauce moment because, <laughs> yes, we had a great go at Maloney and Fox for 15 years. We had a very special place, a creative place, but we had a place where people never wanted to leave. Um, and we Many times, Marge and I would encourage people to go to other agencies to see what it was about. So when we went to Ogilvy, we had big dreams and big aspirations. We were running big U.S. brands. And the taco sauce moment hit me, like I like to say, like a bushel of jalapenos. It was a moment when I was handed a 120-page document full of data and metadata and graphs and charts. And it was all about how to get millennial moms to buy more taco sauce. And I'm not joking. I sat there. I put the document on the desk. I turned to Margie and I said, I need to do something different. This is not at all fulfilling for me. This is, this was a real seminal moment in my Mm -hmm. career where I still remember it to this very day. I probably remember what I was wearing. And so I, I literally resigned the next day. I had no job. I had no idea what was next. And I had to be very careful on what I was going to construct in my next career move, in my reboot. So I, I took a month to just let it all wash over me. I realized that I was most comfortable around art. When we were at Melonium Fox and through my, you know, 30 year marketing career, we used art and artists and to, to build brands and to create amazing events for uh, these companies. And it all went through a prism of art. So I still use that, that knowledge and experience and understanding. But I thought, what can I do every day that can center me in the, in the dead center of art in the art world? And so I created CUSP, which loosely stands for Creativity Unleashed to Solve Problems, because at Ogilvy, you know, unfortunately, I was, I, my creativity was crushed. All I was doing, I was crunching numbers, and I was doing staff utilization reports, and I was moving bodies around to support the brands. And it, it became, I, I felt like I was riptided away from anything creative. So that's when I had that moment. I stopped and thought, what do I want to do? And that's when cusp began. By the way, I don't know any millennial moms that want to buy taco sauce that bad. Um, <laughs> it was old that would have been... though, in case anybody <laughs> wants to know. I don't <laughs> buy that anymore. I look at it and I just walk by, I walk past it. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that experience at Ogilvy, whereas on paper and for people hearing about your responsibilities there would go, wow, Brian has... No, I mean, I thought Maloney and Fox was like the ultimate uh, way to serve clients. I mean, you guys ran an amazing agency and then to then become the head of U.S. brands at Ogilvy, that to some people would be like the penultimate. Right. But for you, it was not fulfilling. 
What's also interesting too, Brian, is that knowing you personally, it's not a surprise to us, I think all your friends, that you would land in a place where you are surrounded by art, where you are um, using art as a way to um, reach people and reconnect and reboot. Does it surprise you that it took this long to get here? Do you wish you had had this epiphany earlier or do you feel like you're doing what you're doing at the right time at the right moment? I think I'm doing what I'm doing at the right time at the right moment. I I say that because I've always made decisions and never really regretted them uh, in terms of any of the business decisions. You know, leaving Patrice Tanaka, Margie and I were at Patrice Tanaka. We ran the Windows 95 and the Microsoft consumer PR business. We left that to start our own place. We then had Maloney and Fox for 15 years. We left that to go to Ogilvy. I never really regretted anything. I just knew at that moment, you know, I had just turned 50. I have two, had two three-year-old twins at the time who are now going to be seven. Um, I knew there was, I knew I needed to do something. I felt it really deep down that it was very visceral to me. And so it, it's not necessarily a surprise that I landed here. I think from that moment I resigned Ogilvy till now, it's been a real eye opener. And I, you know, you, I'm in a, I was, I'm in a whole different category of business, but I really relied on my marketing know how and experience to, to build a new business where I didn't know any of the language. I didn't know what secondary market meant in terms of art and, um, you know, what, what that, what that meant as a definition. So over time I started asking the right questions. I, I asked my friend Cheryl Hazen, she had a mosaic tile studio and she said, I said, Hey, can I take over the front part of your mosaic tile studio? I see an opportunity here to sell art. And she said, yes. So I started having exhibitions and I started reaching out to artists that I love to say, Hey, would you like to join my portfolio? I don't really know what I'm doing yet, (laughs) but would you Mm -hmm. like to? And over the last three years, I've amassed a beautiful collection of, of emerging artists. I've been supporting established artists. I'm now working in a, a field of artists like Keith Haring and, and Christo and Solowit and Rauschenberg. It's just, it's all taking every decision step by step and not not really panicking. I mean, I, I've had my panic moments for new stressed me, but it's been a very sort of systematic way to look at where you are at ground zero and then say, okay, how do I, how do I, how do I get to where I kind of need to be? I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know where it, it was going to look like, but to look back now and say, oh my gosh, now I have a, a gallery in a really creative area in Sunset Park. I, I'm, I'm having a really good time. I'm doing what I love to do. And I'm bringing people in a very comfortable way to experience art in, in all forms. How are you monetizing a gallery, Brian? I know that this is an industry much like perhaps the restaurant industry. Uh, gal- galleries come, galleries go. It's very... Uh, it's very tied to the economy sometimes, depending on how you execute. So how are you making this sustainable for yourself and for the artists? You know, the New York Times wrote um, a story about how these small galleries are closing up. And I read that and I thought, well, CUSP is not 
the typical gallery model. We're not waiting for people to come and purchase art in our gallery. I mean, we're a bit out of the way. We're in Sunset Park. And I couldn't, I couldn't rely on any foot traffic to sell my art. So clearly art sales are important. And we've also created a, an art consultation category where I will go and I'll help people find art they love. I have a strong curation business. When I go into a home, I will help families kind of reorganize where their art goes. Um, we have an installation group that will go and install art in people's homes, reinstall it. And, you know, the curation is really important both for residences and for businesses. We recently finished an installation with 32 pieces in a really cool high-tech firm on Park Avenue South just last month. And so there's a whole lot of different ways that we can create revenue. And I think that's a benefit from my marketing background is I'm just not going to do what is typical. I'd like to do things that will be exciting and in, uh, in layers. Uh, we also have created something that we call the idea trip, which takes individuals, families, and businesses out on the road to experience art, whether just to enjoy or to solve problems as well. So um, there's a whole number of things that we're working on that help us, you know, raise our own awareness. That's brilliant. You know, sometimes you find artists and people in the art world that are really great at the craft, really geniuses around the art. What they lack is the marketing, the sales, the business savvy, whether they're making jewelry or paint or paintings, whatever. It's it's sometimes not a given that this is going to be a natural uh, a, a natural uh, strength of theirs. But it sounds like you have a little bit of best of both worlds. And um, I think that's... You know. That is very smart. Did the New York Times respond, by the way? Did they say, oh, thanks for correcting us and we're going to profile you because I hope that's what's next. You know, you would think after 30 years in PR, they would respond. Um, they did respond on a previous story that I, I sent a note to them on, but not this particular one. But I, you know, I just want I just want to, to be on their radar. And I'll, I that's another thing as a as a former PR gallerist. I I know how to pitch a story to to you know report it. So, right. Um, and yeah. you're in Sunset Sunset Park, right? Park. We're we're in an area called Industry City, and it's a burgeoning creative area. Um, ABC Carpet and Home is literally 300 steps from our gallery. Uh, Mitchell Gold. There's a Bye Bye Baby. I was just there the other weekend buying a stroller. <laughs> um, Mitchell Gold is coming in. Design Within Reach has a huge, huge warehouse there. A lot of creative incubators, a lot of really interesting. There's a group called Camp David there that was recently featured in Architectural Digest and the Times, a really cool workspace that people are are going to it's beautiful views. It's easy to get to. I mean, I've had two exhibitions. I saw you at one and I was so surprised. Mm -hmm. We had 60, 65 people at each show. And, you know, I, I didn't get that many folks when I was in New York at a gallery on Washington. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, how about that? Yeah. Well, Brooklyn is where it's at. I mean, let's be honest. Brooklyn is the new Manhattan Well, lonely, uh, for better or worse. Planet, I just read they, they said Sunset Park was 
one of the 10 coolest places to live and work in the world. <laughs> so really, just out there. well, there you yeah, are. There you go. But uh, uh, right by and, and thanks. Incredible. So you are right on You're ahead of it as, as always. Let's talk about your money, Brian. Have you ever talked about money openly on a show? Probably not, right? I'm your first. I think you are my first. <laughs> well, I really look forward to hearing your answers to some of my so money questions. And I always start by asking guests, what is your money mantra, financial philosophy? Do you have one? You know, I do. And I thought about that. And I, I think it's it's pretty simple. It's it's really have fun spending your money. I mean, if you have the means and you spend within your means, have fun spending it. I think that's one thing everybody sort of over freaks out about it. And I say, just don't freak out. But I do realize there are there are times when, you know, there are unforeseen money problems and unforeseen the issues that you have to pay for. I say, just don't freak out when that happens and find great ad- advice. Find a, a good finance uh, person who can help you through some of those issues. Your bank. When I started Cusp, I, you know, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I went to my bank and they have, they helped me tremendously. So that's, that's sort of my general mantra. But one sort of philosophy that I really lived by is, um, the simple fact is sort of micro purchases. You buy that $5 latte every day and you're spending $1,200, $1,500 a year. I say go buy your coffee maker and make it at home. And it, it sounds so simple, but when I had left Ogilvy and I was without any revenue, you know, finding ways to save $700, $1,200, $1,800 here and there was tremendous. And it really, really helped me a lot. It's true. I think that when you are going through periods of unemployment or any kind of financial setback, looking at how you are spending, you know, buying a latte when you have a job and you've got savings, it's totally innocent and enjoy it. But yeah, it really does. The numbers don't lie and they definitely add up. And when you're not making any money, cutting back on those little things can end up being like a revenue stream, essentially. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And I, I also like to say that, you know, the piggy bank has power. It really does. And to that, I mean, when, you know, you're we would decide to not take a taxi and take a subway instead. What I would do is I would put that $20 that I would have paid for the taxi into the piggy bank. And you do that for a few years. And, and when I was left with, you know, no lunch money in my transition after Ogilvy, I raided that piggy bank and it, it bought me a lot of sandwiches off the food truck. I mean, it really did. <laughs> Good. I know that's that's the key, right? We talk theoretically like, oh, you know, take the subway, you'll save. But if you don't actually save the money, you're not doing anything helpful to yourself. My son, Evan, he's three. We have a jar of coins in our living room. And he actually had, he probably doesn't know why or what the value of this is. But whenever he finds coins, he puts it in the jar. He just thinks that's where it has to go. And he has yet to see the other side of that, which is taking that to a bank or a Coinstar machine and actually getting something uh, from that. But um, you can learn that at a very young age. And um, I know you have two young children, twins. Um, 
when you were a kid, Brian, what was your what was your exposure to money? Did your family talk about it? Uh, did you have any relationship with money when you were a kid that was positive, negative? You know, discussions around money were usually incredibly stressful, to be honest, in my family. Um, I was originally one of six children. My father worked. My mother did not. He worked for the Ohio Bell Telephone Company for 40 years, and God love him. And we had no money. The The money we had went to the, you know, the basics and the staples. And there, as I said, there were six children in a house where we shared one bathroom. And as I was thinking about this as a house that had no art in it. So in some ways, I look back and I find it a bit ironic. But that experience that for me in childhood, I realized that if I wanted some lunch money or if I wanted something that my parents couldn't afford, I needed to figure out a way to get it myself. And so I did. I mean, in third grade, I, I had my first paper route and then I saved money to buy a lawnmower and I bought a lawnmower and I, I, I've cut more grass than I think anybody on the planet. I raked leaves, I shoveled snow and, and I saved money and I, I had all the money that I thought I ever needed. And I felt very fortunate that I could. So early on, I had that, that, you know, ability to say, how do I, how do I create a revenue stream? Really? Mm -hmm. Um, The entrepreneurship, really, there's a correlation actually between entrepreneurs and starting a revenue stream as a young kid, whether that's a lemonade stand or just getting a job. What did you do with the money? Uh, You know, I, after I would collect my money from my paper route customers, I would go to Burger King and get a fun meal pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I just remember that as being like the highlight of my my weekends. Um, you know, I, I did save money. I remember having a passbook and going to the bank. And, you know, I went to high school and I, I could buy my class jacket and I could buy uh, buy things, you know, my, my parents really couldn't afford to buy. And I, I felt really proud of that. And you know, as soon as I turned 16, I worked at Wendy's and I, I worked at Wendy's for five years. I worked at Wendy's for throughout my college um, summers. And so, you know, I always knew the value of money and the value of hard work. And in college, I had two to three jobs. I was an RA and I was a student assistant. So that all sort of built me up to when I came to New York, Farnoosh, I had, I don't know, I think $38 in my pocket and Corky Sinclair from Waiting for Guffin might say a, a tube of chapstick. And I I thought my first job at $14,000 a year was just mind blowing. You could, you could bring in $200 a week. I was totally excited. But I thought, That's more than Burger King money for sure. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, what was the job, by the way? I what was the- I was hired to drive the Raid Bionic Bug robot, the Raid Mobile for Johnson Wax, on a national tour to educate consumers about insect control. Wow, so, it's not exactly the Wiener Mobile, but but it was uh, a great way to see the, the country, and and we drove you know eighteen thousand miles in three months, and I just had a I had a real blast, but. That money was, you know, really real to me and, and really, really wonderful. So it sort of it builds from there. 
I think there is something about being one of six children that it just makes you hopefully makes you really hardworking and you kind of have to fend for yourself. Right. And that seems to have been a running theme in your in your life as an entrepreneur. It makes you really prepared for entrepreneurship in some ways. You have to hustle. You have to know how to promote yourself to get what you need. You have to constantly, constantly be looking for ways and resources to achieve things. No one's going to just hand you something. There's not enough to go around. Do you attribute that to the fact that you were one of six? I, I very much, very much do. And all of us and my, my family, um, you know, my mom died very early. So that even made it even more difficult. I was very young when my mom died. And so my my father remarried has three children um so you know and like i said eight of us in a household all shared the same bathroom it really does it makes you creative in terms of how you 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 generate money and you generate revenue and um you know and interestingly enough i never felt like i was without anything when i was growing up not at all and so it does make you scrappy and I, I feel like that's that's been a big benefit for me throughout my career in, in marketing and now certainly in the art world, um, you know, finding new creative ways to to build a business all through that prism of art. It's um, it's exciting and it's terrifying at the same time. From Ohio to New York City, being raised in Ohio versus being raised in New York City very different. You have two children, two small children you're raising with your uh, husband in New York City. Are you very conscious of the their exposure to things that maybe they're being exposed to faster, sooner? Uh, I always wonder about how children in New York City develop a relationship with money. There's so much excess here, but there's also so much poverty here. So as a parent, what do you see your role being in shaping their money mindset? Because it does start to form as young as five, six years old. That's a very good question. I mean, they're now six going to be seven and and we have real discussions about what they need and what they want. My, my older sister uh, said it very clearly. She said, when it comes to money, give them some, most of what they need and some of what they want. And I thought that's, that's a really great way to look at it. So we have those discussions quite a bit. We do talk about earning money. We talk about spending that money they earn in fun ways. Uh, We, you know, we talk about rainy day. We, we say no. And it's it's hard, but it's not. It's providing those smart guardrails and, you know, staying within those. And you're right. It's it's pretty epic. When I read the story about the summer camp day and the parents were flying in on their, you know, private planes with fresh Nobu sushi to deliver to their kids at summer camp. I mean, Yikes. I, I didn't even need sushi until I was like 19 years old, by the way. But look, that goes to having fun <laughs> spending the money if you have the money. But I do think there are, it, it goes a little too far, you know. And so it's it's nice that um, the, the children were brought up in public schools and it's it's a little more democratic in, in public schools versus the private. I'm not I'm not saying one is better than the other. I just think it's it's probably a little easier in the public school to not 
have that over over showing of wealth. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, we have conversations about it, and they're just having you know they're just now understanding. And but look, I we remind them they have most everything they need, and that's all that's important. Brian, what is your number one money habit? Something that you do. It could be daily. It could be once a quarter, but it's something very uh, thoughtful and conscious that you do that helps you manage your money well, whether it's in your marriage, in your business. Tell us what that is. If there is something. It's really simple. I call my financial advisor <laughs> uh, at least once a month. And you know, money, you know, money and math for me were never really my strongest suit and our understanding finances, you know, I actually went into PR for Noosh, so I didn't have to take accounting in college. It wasn't part of my requirements. <laughs> and now, I wish I had had that foresight. I would have loved to have skipped accounting. But no, it was no, my worst subject. That's one decision. I wish I, had, I wish I had taken accounting. So I, you know, find a great advisor, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. If it's kind of out of your, your, your realm of understanding, it's, uh, and, you know, now with, with our new business, um, having a great bookkeeper, you know, I can pull all this stuff together, but my bookkeeper is, you know, keeps me on track and in, and she gives us great advice. So that's what I would say. My number one habit is just find a great advisor and, and have them help you out. Yeah. Don't go it alone if you don't have to. And there's a lot of ways to get the help without spending a fortune. I know that typically we, uh, feel that uh, financial advisors are going to be costly. They take a big cut. But I just came back from a conference in Dallas at the XY Planning Network conference. And this is a community of advisors that largely work with people in their 30s uh, who don't have a ton of assets yet and maybe just want someone to help them out with budgeting, spend a few hundred bucks, and then maybe develop the relationship from there. So everyone, if you're interested, don't know where to start, don't have a lot of money, XY Planning Network. And I'm 100% with you, Brian. I think it's important to recognize your strengths and your weaknesses and fill those gaps and um, and be in communication as much as possible with these people and not let them just take it, you know, take your money and and go, but like you're actually involved and you're asking questions. That's, that's a great bit of advice. All right. Before we wrap, I want to do some so many fill in the blanks. This is where my guests get to just really you know reveal their 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 consciousness around money by finishing some sentences so here we go if i won the lottery the first thing i would do is call my advisor there you go that advisor uh how did you find your advisor by the way was it word of mouth was it friends was it just trial and error ironically margie and i one of our first um big jobs was uh, rebranding a consulting firm called J.H. Cohn. And one of the gentlemen, Howard Hook, was one of our clients. And we were just so impressed at how they did business and literally how they spoke in English. Like, it amazes me how advisors talk in their own jargon lake. And I, you know, I don't know the jargon. So I asked Howard early on, please, please tell us what this means in, in real simple, plain English and no. And he's been my advisor and I believe Margie's advisor for 25 years. So, uh, he's terrific. 
Wow. 25 years. That's a good advisor. I've fired a number of people in my very shorter experience with uh, financial support. It's great to find someone you can trust. All right. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? I'm, I'm going to say my sausage, egg and cheese sandwich on the corner. Mm. It makes me happy. Um, <laughs> it really does. I love an egg sandwich, Brian. Yeah. I'm there with you. You know, and I have to say my kids will take their money out of their piggy banks and we'll we'll do a treat every once in a while on, on the egg and cheese sandwich. It's the little things. And I have to say, I'm not a big fan of street meat, but I do like an egg sandwich off a cart and coffee and when I worked on Wall Street many years ago, during the recession, the Starbucks on Wall Street shut, shuttered. And guess what? The street, the cart vendor um, was he his business flourished. I mean, he's recession proof, right? Who can beat a dollar fifty for a large coffee, delicious large coffee and uh, a two dollar egg sandwich? Not Starbucks. Yeah, no, I uh, that does make me happy. I'm sure there's probably a more sophisticated answer out there, like, you know, buying a great pair of shoes. But um <sighs> I like this answer because it's the little things. And I think that, you know, it's not just the taste, but it's the experience, you know, going to the cart, maybe your friends now with the guy who runs the cart, your kids get involved. It's it's memories that you're making. And that's yep. it's very special. Yep. When I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is. The one thing I wish I knew about money. Um, that's a tough one because I, I feel like I had a healthy understanding about what money was what money mm-hmm. I needed, what, what I needed to do to get there. Um, I don't, I don't mean to answer this in a, you know, Pollyanna way. I, I, I feel like I understood the value of money. I saw how hard my parents worked. My, my mother ended up getting a job. Like I, I, I saw that and I was taught to save and I was taught to know my banker and I was taught, you know, how to go out and, and, and make the money. So I, um, I really don't know. I didn't want for more money. I didn't. Mm. So you didn't feel like you had maybe not as much as you did. And that's a big credit to Mr. And Mrs. Maloney. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, we are thankful. You know, in my, when I went to college, I, I raided my grandpa's closet with his clothes after he passed because they were the best wool sweaters I've ever seen. He had puppies. <laughs> shoes. And I went to college and people asked me like where I got my clothes and where did I, you know, how much were they? And, and I just was like, these were my grandpa's clothes. So I, that's cute. That's really special. Yeah. And I, um, I mean, I've always felt that, you know, yes, yes. Having more money, um, might've been nice, but I, it didn't, I don't know if I ever really thought that to be honest. Hmm. You had a, a talent for being able to find fulfillment and pleasure in the little things and the sentimental things. And I think that is a great lesson for all of us. And last but not least, Brian, this might this I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but here we go. Finish this sentence. I'm Brian Maloney. I'm so money because because I love what I do. I love what I do. I love bringing people to art. I love helping them understand how to get there. I love, and that's all begatting a nice career for me now. I am so happy for you. I'm so grateful to have you in my life and to share your story with our audience. You're such a gift. And everybody, 
please check out Cusp in Sunset Park if you ever visit Brooklyn. But of course, your website, please share that with us. It's cusp-nyc.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, So, yeah. And, you know, we're laid back. I like to say when you come through the doors at a certain hour, you'll always be asked if you want a cocktail. So please do. I'm there. I'm telling you. And we're going to be making some fall visits to Cusp uh, in Sunset Park. It's really a great developing area. Like I'm, t- we had such a ball at Bed Bath and Beyond <laughs> in in Sunset Park because nobody was really there that hour, and you could. It was like a little mall, and we could park and we could have lunch, and it was just with two kids. That's like all you crave when you're a parent on a Saturday morning is quiet and parking and um, more to come, obviously. But uh, you're at the right place at the right time, and we appreciate you, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Farnish. Thanks so much to Brian for stopping by. Everyone, check out Cusp NYC. If you can't go there physically, go online, cusp-nyc.com. And you can also track them on Instagram at Cusp NYC. And as a reminder, Make Room, this amazing exhibit with 12 female artists will be happening starting October 25th through January 2018. It'll feature a dozen female artists that use uncommon techniques or unique process to transform traditional media. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. 